Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. Ten years on from his untimely death, we look back on the life and legend of Colin McRae. It's 10 years since the motorsport world lost Colin McRae, one of its biggest stars, both for his achievements as a driver and for his impact on the wider world. He was a driver who truly transcended the sport. So to mark this anniversary, we thought it'd be a good chance to look back on Colin McRae's life and his legacy. And we've got two great guests to talk all about their memories and tell the story of Colin McRae, as well as some special interviews along the way from those who worked with him and who competed against him. My name is Ed Straw, Editor-in-Chief of Autosport, and joining me first is Autosport's Rallies Editor, David Evans. Now, David, when did you first run into Colin McRae? The first time I met Colin would have been, this is going to make me sound very old now, Ed, it was 1988 uh, on the Welsh Rally, where I have to say I was a very young fella. Uh, and my father had taken me out of school for the day, because he clearly thought that going to watch the Welsh Rally was far more important than double maths or whatever it was. Yeah, so it was the 88 Welsh, where Colin was driving a Nova um, and I was absolutely, even at that age, he was only 20 years old, but I'd seen enough and read enough to know that this guy was special. But I do remember being confronted by Colin, even at that age. And Colin was quite shy and I was terribly shy. 
Uh, and the only question I could think to ask Colin at this point, he was at scrutineering just before the event, was to say, where's your dad? And and that was it. That was all I'd got. And and Jimmy was stuck on the motorway somewhere on the M6 or something. And that was it. And And we both sort of looked at each other for a while and then I turned around and walked off and didn't even think to ask for his autograph well, that's a uh, that's a great interview well, it was yeah and they've, and they've gone downhill since then <laughs> we, we should reproduce the first interview well if that's the quality of uh, quality of anecdotes and questions you asked him over the following years this is going to be a, this is going to be a great podcast also joining us is Colin Clark the voice of rally how about you when was your first well do you know what Ed? I, you know unfortunately I, I really didn't get to interview Colin that often because uh, when I started doing the job I'm currently doing, which is 2005, it was very much in the latter years, in the latter days of, of Colin's career. But when I was younger, in, in my early to mid-20s, uh, being a, a proud and patriotic Scotsman, clearly, you know, OK, Scottish motorsport, we, we've had many great champions, but you know, Scotland celebrates its champions. And Scotland, uh, you know, in terms of its motorsport heroes, they're, they're right up there. And I, I kind of grew up through my 20s. Uh, following Colin McRae's career, even although I didn't have much interest in rallying. And in some ways, he did to me what he did to people around the world. He introduced me to rallying. Uh, so I didn't actually get too many opportunities to, to as I say, interview him. But I, I do remember the first time, and it was like meeting a hero. Absolutely. I, I once met I once met Phil Taylor, the, the multiple darts champion, and I could hardly say anything to him. Uh, and it was a bit like that. It was a bit like that when I first met Colin. It was at the end, he'd come out of the uh, halfway stage up on Eppent, and uh, I couldn't get up there, so I was doing my interviews. It was the first year I was doing stage-end interviews on the junction of that dual carriageway in the A40, and I remember standing there and thinking, well, you know, these drivers don't really know me because it was the first year I was doing this. Uh, and I thought, McRae certainly doesn't know me, so he won't stop for me. There's no way Colin is going to stop at this junction and speak to me. And the car, it was a Skoda. It was the year he was in the Skoda Fabia World Rally car. And he's coming towards me, and I can remember almost butterflies in my stomach as the car, I think, will he, won't he? And he stopped. And he stopped, and he wound the window down, and I thought, my goodness me, I'm going to get the chance here. The first time to speak to what was effectively a boyhood hero of mine, and he was absolutely delightful. He didn't just answer one question. He didn't answer two questions. It was three or four questions. There were two cars behind him by the time he'd pulled away. And that's something I'll never forget. I had, I had fortunately, one or two very memorable moments with Colin over the years, and we'll perhaps come on to those. But that first opportunity to speak to effectively what was uh, a hero of mine uh, will will always always stick there. But I think that was part of the appeal with Colin, was that he had that ability to just totally disarm everything. And he was fundamentally a bloke who loved to drive cars quickly. And if you shared that passion, you were in. And, and that was Colin. I had exactly the same thing. Whenever the telephone, if ever he phoned me and it said Colin McRae, you know, you'd get that instant butterfly that you didn't get with any other driver. When you phone them, you know, you phone Carlos Sainz and these people, it's quite a big deal. But when you heard that voice on the other end of the phone, it was incredible. Absolutely incredible. That chimes a little bit with my experience. I didn't know Colin very well. I didn't deal with him a great deal, but I did do a few features with him over the years. One time when he did Le Mans with the ProDrive Ferrari. And also earlier, I remember 2003 Rally GB. I was there just sort of helping out and I had to do a feature on because it was his last full-time WRC outing. So there was a, a feature in Autosport magazine. I think you'd help me set yeah. it up. And there'd been a bit of a problem with actually meeting up with Colin at the end of the rally and you'd said oh he's going to give you a call and I thought oh, this, this is going to be one of those things that goes wrong and I just remember driving back thinking oh, I'm going to go in and say I've, I've got nothing and then of course Colin did call me and I, I seem to remember I pulled over onto the hard shoulder just by the seven bridge <laughs> <laughs> but I respected the fact he'd actually gone to the trouble of phoning and then we had the we had the, the feature about his his final outing 
well, final full-time outing, I should say. So what was it about Colin McRae that was so resonant for people? He was someone who transcended the whole sport. He absolutely did. And it was simply the fact that he was this no-holds-barred character, that everything was flat out and there just wasn't a dull moment you never knew what was coming next in and out of the car and you know I was fortunate enough on the odd occasion to to see him outside of the car and it was just the same he was just a big piece of fun you know everywhere it was just great whatever he did he did it flat out and he was brilliant and it it was that and it but it was simply the the ability that he had behind the wheel the natural flair uh, to drive a car so quickly uh, and so sideways uh, and it, you know, it was this perfect era that he had the cars, particularly pre ninety five when they had the bigger restrictors in Group A, the thirty eight mil restrictor, where there was stacks of power, and you could drive the car on the throttle, even in a place like Corsica on sticky slicks, he could still drive it completely sideways, and that's what worked. You know, that was it was the people sitting at home watching this guy coming out of a ditch, going into another ditch, and still winning rallies, and that resonated with people. And he still today seems to be a figure who looms large over rallying. I'm, I'm not sure whether there's any drive. You could argue there's greater rally drivers. Yeah, for sure. Statistically, there are. Of course there are. You know, that's not difficult to, to, to prove that there are and there have been and there will be better rally drivers, greater rally drivers than Colin. But it was almost the perfect storm with Colin McRae. As you said, David, he had this unbelievable understanding of how cars work, this unbelievable sympathy for cars. He had an unbelievable amount of bravery and talent and determination. And he also had a character which appealed to people, to young people. And that clearly was helped by his involvement with the, the Colin McRae rally game. But there were so many elements that came together with Colin McRae. There was this, this, this real kind of rebellious streak within him. Uh, you know, he lived by his own rules. Your rule books didn't really come into Colin McRae's thinking because he lived by his own rules. And that was very appealing. The, the combination of all of those elements, the talent, the skill, the bravery, the, the, the kind of ability just to, just to say, well, I don't care about what people say about me, what people think about me. I don't care what they want me to do. All I want to do is go quick here. There was something massively appealing about that combination. One of the interviews we've got is, is with David Richards and David Lapworth, and they talk about this, this area. You're right. It was, it was the, the perfect storm in more ways than one, but... When he got to ProDrive and got to Subaru, they were a young team, a young company that he was actively told to go out there and be the wild guy um, because it fitted with their marketing strategy and it totally worked, you know, and it was very easy for Colin to do because Colin loved extreme sports, you know, he's an amazing skier and did the jet skis, the water skiing, the whole thing. And he was the proper boy's own hero. Well, let's hear from David Richards about those early years and maybe an anecdote about a time when perhaps that maximum attack approach didn't entirely pay off. I always tell one particular story about Colin because it rather summarises Colin very well for me. Um, It was his first trip to the Thousand Lakes Rally in Finland. And he was building his experience on the World Championship and we decided that it would be quite good to send him to Finland just to drive around sensibly, learn the roads. It's a very fast rally, the fastest in the world. So I decided I'd better have a chat with him beforehand and had him in my office. And I said to him, I said, look, we're, we're, gonna, we're investing in you for the long term and you've got to take the same approach. I'd like you to go to Finland, drive this event very sensibly and just um, we'll have a bit of a debrief when you come back and then next year will be another year of building information on the rally and and the year afterwards you'll be perhaps be competitive there he said okay he assured me he'd taken in my advice 
when I arrived in Finland the day of uh, scrutineering, um, he'd been there for a few weeks practicing, maybe two weeks practicing in those days. And um, I asked where Colin was and why his car wasn't in scrutineering to be told that it was down at the local body shop because he'd rolled it the day before out practicing with it. So you can imagine that went down like a, a lead balloon. And uh, we had words before the start, but that's that was just the beginning because on that particular rally, he rolled the car on three separate occasions. On one particular occasion, Derek Ringer was getting out of the car to sort of walk back when Colin sort of realized it would still work and um, drove back onto the track. And you couldn't help but become engrossed in this uh, adventure. And by the end of the event, I was one of the people with a sledgehammer trying to knock the dents out of the roof. And uh, I think he finished eighth overall. And, and that's when the, the Finns took him to their heart and announced he was the, the Scottish version of a flying Finn. It was a unique era when Colin came along. We were a tiny little team. We were starting with a small company, Subaru, in Japan, fighting against the big boys, the Fords, the Toyotas, the Lanciers in those days. We were in a unique set of circumstances, and um, we were taking big risks in so many ways like Colin was. And um, so it was a, a unique set of circumstances that we were thrown together, and we, we allowed ourselves to... Uh, to experiment and sort of take risks and, and somehow pay the bills for all those accidents. Uh, of course, the, the latest technology, the sort of less power in the cars perhaps and, uh, uh, and the, the tidier driving styles have led to cars being far less spectacular. And one wonders whether Colin would have suited those driving styles these days and the, and the cars that we have nowadays. I still think Colin remains to this day the most recognisable name in rallying. I think for many people, he stands out above the famous Finns or, or the more current drivers. He came in an era where the McRae game, the computer game, was obviously a highlight. People actually looked at him like Lara Croft in America. I remember having somebody talk to me about the uh, the McRae game and, and wondering whether he was a real character or not and uh, but of course uh, uh, that was very much the case and uh, uh, and of course his style of driving and the um, the no holes barred approach to to his uh, his rallying was something that endeared him to everyone uh, uh, the scandinavians took him under the wing their wing as another flying fin if you look today and you ask anyone in the street name a rally driver they might remember Paddy Hopkirk. They um, they might remember one of the Flying Finns, but uh, I'm sure that the the name that they will all come up with is Colin McRae. And uh, that's not just in this country. You can go far afield. You can go to New Zealand. You can go to Scandinavia. You go to France, Germany. Everyone remembers him. So he he raised the sport to a different level. It's easy to forget that those days when Colin was winning, he was on the front pages and that win in Chester when he won the world championship, it was all over every newspaper and every television channel in the country. Another key player in the pro-drive McRae era was former technical director David Lapworth. The things that stand out for me that sort of, go, I'll go back to the kind of early days, is the two, the good and the bad. The good would be, I sat in the car with Colin the first time he drove a Subaru when he was just, you know, before he did the British Championship with us, when he was just a kid, he was probably, was he 20 years of age, something like that? Um, and what was obvious straight away, and was always obvious all through his career, is that Colin was able to just get into any car and drive it. Somehow, 
that whole business of the balance of the car, the way you drive the car, the way you change gear smoothly and quickly and so on, he seemed to have a fantastic instinct for that. The, incident, the particular thing I'm talking about at the time, he drove the, our first car. Around about the same time, um, I sat in the car with another world champion who was, you know, we were courting to come and join the team. Colin made it look 10 times easier than another driver who I won't name, who was much more experienced and was a world champion. It was the same whether you were jumping into a hire car from the airport or whatever. You know, the first roundabout outside the airport, Colin was already driving the car as if it was on a rally. The bad side of Colin, which kind of illustrates the way he was, and especially in the younger days, I remember the first time we took him to Argentina. He took a wheel off um, fairly early on in the rally. What could have been a painful retirement for a young driver became a painful retirement for a young driver and the whole team because rather than stop Colin just kept going until the car stopped so he wore away all the suspension that was broken he wore his way through the sump guard he wore his way through the sump until there was no oil left in the engine and the engine would no longer drag the car along the road and we all felt why couldn't you have just stopped when you took the wheel off yeah and that was kind of part of the package in those early days I'm not sure whether we'll see somebody with that appeal again because the I'm, I'm sure the characters are out there. I mean, I've met other people. You know, I think of somebody like I don't know Travis. Yeah, um, that appeals to people in the same way. Um, we make it more and more difficult as the years goes on because we put more and more pressure on young drivers to toe the line, say the right things, behave the right things, be professional. That kind of suppresses it even if it doesn't kill it do you know what I mean? um so we might be guilty of suppressing you know, suppressing some of those people um what is clear as well is that the circumstances were right we can take some of the responsibility the credit for getting Colin to where he was and it probably was only possible because we were a young team and we were going through the same kind of evolution a modern professional established team would probably not tolerate the number of accidents, um, the number of mistakes, the, some of the behaviour in the same way that we did it in those days. So the, thing, the circumstances need to be right for it to happen again. There's no doubt that when you listen to what Diaz just said about that time in, in the 1008s, Colin's style was absolutely fantastic so flamboyant and everything and it just r reminds me of of one conversation i had with with jimmy actually it was with alistair um about very early in colin's career uh in 86 when he had the sunbeam which was his first in fact his first event was in an avenger but he then moved on to this sunbeam um which i think was owned by george donaldson yeah it was an ex george donaldson car um so uh jimmy is standing in the woods waiting for Colin to come through. Uh, and Colin was obviously been at his first event. He was seeded quite a long way down. And so they've seen all of the front-running Scottish Championship guys come through and Jimmy being multiple British champion. Uh, I can't remember how many titles he got at that point. 
was very impressed with, with what he was seeing in 86 in the first five or six cars. And then obviously the sort of talent dropped off a little bit and Jimmy was really getting quite fed up after he'd seen 20 or 30 of these cars come through. And then there is this noise coming through the forest of this car right on the edge, absolutely being given everything. And Jimmy apparently said to Alistair, it may have been Margaret. Now that sounds a bit more like it. It sounds a great accent there, Colin. That's just for you. And just at the point he finishes a sentence, Colin hoves into view completely sideways in his sunbeam, and Jimmy goes white as a sheet, as you can imagine, to to see his son. And but that was Colin, you know, always flat out. That's his more or less his first event. That's also my first memory of Colin McRae when I was in another life working with BAT. I'd gone along to two thousand and three. Uh, Catalonia, Rally Catalonia. And I remember going up one afternoon into the, the hills to spectate. Uh, and Colin was in a Citroen World Rally car at the time. And it was the era of Loeb emerging, of Solberg emerging, Marco Martin, Francois Duval. And things were changing. Driving styles were changing. And we were up and it was a fantastic, it was like an amphitheater. It was big, big. You came along a crest, flat out, braked for a very long open hairpin, short straight, then a tighter hairpin left. And, you know, these guys came through, Loeb came through, on rails, Solberg on rails, Duval uh, and others very similar. And then, then McRae came along. And, you know, there, there had to be twenty or 30,000 Spaniards, and we know how excitable they get uh, about their rallying. And, you know, they'd been, they'd been appreciative of the guys that had come through previously. But McRae came across the top, and there was a jump into this hairpin, and the car was sideways, maybe 60 or 70 metres before the start of the hairpin, and it went all the way around, sweeping around this open hairpin, nose in, tail out, barely getting it back for the straight, and then again for the tighter hairpin left. And it was like being in Wembley Stadium uh, when a goal was scored. The noise, the adulation, it was just, and it was only McRae that got that, and it was only McRae that could almost invoke that sort of response from rally fans. And he did it all his career. He did, absolutely, throughout his, his whole career. And, you know, there's, there's, I don't know, there's countless uh, episodes such as that that we, could, that we could talk about. But just, I mean, the one that stands out for me was, was really his breakthrough event, which was the, the 1990 RAC, uh, where he'd, he'd won the Scottish Championship in 1988. Uh, he'd crashed a lot in 88, but he'd put it together and won uh, in 88. He'd crashed a lot in 89, and then 90 came uh, and he was in, a, I think, an R.E.D., Sierra Cosworth. Um, and he kind of needed a result because the money was running out. There was some backing from Shell, but it was drying up. Ford were, were running out of parts, I suppose, <laughs> shells and, and bits and pieces. Uh, and he needed to put it together. Uh, and it was the first, it was actually the second event for the four-wheel drive, Sierra Cosworth. Uh, he did the Audi Sport the first time. And then he was teammate to Russell Brooks um, on the RAC. And... Uh, they finished sixth ultimately, but this car went into ditches. It bounced off a, a gate post somewhere, and in the end, it was known as the shed. Uh, and it was known as the shed because I can't remember which impact it was. Um, but the the they couldn't shut Derek Ringer's door, so they in the end they welded the door shut. Derek got in the car and they welded the door shut. And of course, the scrutineers arrived and said, I'm sorry, you know, we, we can't have that. You know, the guy's got to be able to get out of the car in the event of an accident, which was at that time reasonably likely. Um, so they undid the weld and all they could find to keep this door shut was the bolt off a farmer's gate. So they whipped the, the bolt off the farmer's gate and attached it to the door. And that was how they shut the door on this thing. 
and he finished sixth and it was the most amazing drive and it was the weeks after that that dr picked the phone up and said i've got an idea he'd got some money from rothman's they're obviously pro driver running the the subaru team then the subaru cars and they were looking for a junior team uh so dr picked up the phone talked to jimmy talked to colin and the deal for 91 was done and that was the very start and it was that event and it was done in such typical colin style you know he could have driven around a bit more sensibly and probably still finished sixth but he drove in a car that was known as the shed do you think a driver nowadays could have that kind of run into such a successful career obviously the way he started was was slightly unusual by contemporary standards and this reputation for crashing was was probably fairly well deserved wasn't it and obviously david richards talked about how it fitted in well with what subaru was trying to do. obviously Colin, you talked about the sort of perfect storm and it does seem in retrospect quite an improbable story looking back now with what we know now well of course it was always going to go that way but it actually seems pretty impossible it does. It does. And undoubtedly, you know, he arrived at the right time when, as we've mentioned, the pro driver were t- trying to get this image together and this team together. But for me, it simply couldn't happen now because, you know, there's not a manufacturer out there with the budget and the wherewithal and the tolerance, if you like, to, to allow this to carry on. Um, so, no, I, I, I don't think it could. No, we're seeing it, aren't we, this year? This year has been a very strange year in the WRC, but we've seen uh, you know, a couple of drivers that have been benched this year and we haven't seen that for many many years Duval nearly 10 years ago was probably the last time we saw that but the level of of tolerance within top level motorsport not just rallying these days uh, you know has very much um, diminished hasn't it you know and and, uh, you know David Richards was the perfect man for Colin McRae and Colin McRae was the perfect man for David Richards they were both risk takers they were both ambitious Uh, They were both doing things not necessarily by the rules, not necessarily by the form book. You know, they were doing things differently. And and to get that combination again would be unusual. I don't think it's impossible. You know, there are plenty of people out there who um, who are quite flamboyant, quite outgoing, who are risk takers, who maybe might someday come along with a budget. They might find another McRae, but it's highly, highly unlikely. But if you look for the for the length of time that Colin was going through that sort of stage of his career, because Colin was a very the way that his career progressed, it was very kind of defined by the way that Jimmy managed him. And it was absolutely brilliant in that Jimmy, I think Colin had to buy his first rally car, which how often does that happen these days? So he he worked in the family business. He bought that first rally car. Um, and then when he'd finished in the Sunbeam, uh, Colin would have been right ready to go up to a much more powerful car. Jimmy was having none of that. It was a 1300cc Nova. You get you get in that car and you put it on the door handles and when you're absolutely on the edge in that car, we'll think about moving up. And that was brilliant. You know, I remember I remember watching that car do things. You know, there was the the one year in on the Scottish rally. I think I was at 80, 88, um, and he finished ninth overall. Something like that. These amazing results that you should never have managed in in a car. That was how he did it. And half the time he'd get that astonishing result. Half the time he'd roll it into a ball. But at that time, you know, you talk to people like Barry Lockhead, who was who was Colin's big mate, and they worked in these cars together. I can't remember the events, but there was an event in Wales, maybe the Gwynedd Rally, Skip Brown or something. He had a an accident or a mechanical or something. They It was an accident, yeah. They drove, they trailered the car all the way back up to Scotland, put a shell on it overnight or something, and it did another event the next day. And he was doing so many rallies um, in that car. And at that time, he could have the crashes, get back in the car and win the next time. And 
it was it was an incredible way of sort of managing and, and developing his career and you, you just don't really see that anymore so may, yeah maybe maybe we're not uh, some of us perhaps don't give enough credit then to Jimmy McCray and, and mm. you know we talk a lot about Colin and David Richards and ProDrive but you know to have someone there guiding your career like Jimmy and he didn't do things again conventionally Jimmy clearly um, you know maybe maybe that's another element that, that again contributed to that perfect storm you know we are seeing sons of drivers coming through now Cali Roth and Perra uh, um, Oliver Solberg and others who, who, who all may make names for themselves but but they don't seem to have perhaps the, uh, the the iron rod that Jimmy had, the iron, you know, and the, the stick, yeah. and 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 you know, maybe Jimmy's guidance was a but, lot, a lot to 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 the you know, added a lot to the the success. It did undoubtedly, and you know, yeah, Colin had a very strong, you know, Jimmy and Margaret were great parents. You know, they had very strong views on the way that they bring their children up, and and that was quite clear that you know. Nothing was taken for granted with Colin. He worked for everything. Um, and that was the same with, with Alistair. Uh, and for sure, you know, talking to them now, you, they're exactly the sort of virtues and character traits that you want from parents. And yeah, they, for sure, Jimmy, absolutely, the way he did it was great. And then he took Colin, I remember, was it the 1989 Audi Sport Jimmy did in a Toyota? And he could have had the deal that David Llewellyn had for the British Rally Championship in a Celica GT4 in, no, it must have been 88. Jimmy could have had that car for 89 and 90 and would have won two more British Championships in that car. But there was nothing for Colin in that deal with Toyota. So he sacrificed his own career at that point and went back to Ford and said, what can we do? So Ford gave him a car uh, and gave Colin a car. And that was, a you know, that was a real leg up for Colin to get him into those cars then. Um, but that was... You know, we'd come sort of all the way around that you've got to buy your own car. And, but Jimmy realised at that point that Colin was at a level that he could move on now. Talking of moving on levels, obviously those early years with ProDrive, he was still seen as this crash-prone, very rapid, flamboyant driver. But then I guess it was maybe starting with the, the first win in New Zealand. He went through this process where he went from being that to being, in 95, world champion which was a pretty improbable transformation, really, with the, with the reputation he'd, he'd built up. How did he go from being this, this sort of rising, rising star but crash-prone into somebody capable of, of winning consistently? I think quite simply, he went over the limit. He went a long way over the limit, and he found out where that limit was by going over it, and then he could come back to it. 93, that first win in New Zealand, that was the beginning of a change in Colin. People, regular readers and listeners would know of the stage in New Zealand called Motu Road, uh, which is 40, 45 kilometers. You barely get out of sort of second, third gear. It's corner, corner, corner all the time. Um, and it's an incredibly technical and really difficult stage where patience is everything. And this was a stage where Colin McRae would never succeed in his early career. He would overdrive the car. He would cook the tires. He'd be running wide. He'd be in a ditch there. He'd take a wheel off here. 93, he absolutely got that stage right and he did that by just bringing everything back and Derek Ringer has to take a huge amount of credit here because he really controlled the car with the way that he read the notes and everything and it was that change that Colin realized that to go quicker sometimes you had to go slower and he did it and he came out of Moto and he destroyed everybody and for the next three or four years nobody could come close I remember Didier Auriol saying at the start of the Moto stage in 94-95 so now we get ready to lose a minute to one man. 
And, you know, at that time, the championship was so competitive for a driver to say before the start of a 40-odd K stage, they fully expected to lose a second and a half a kilometer was unheard of. And it was the most amazing stage that Colin did that on. If he did that on Oinapoya or somewhere like that, you expect it because that's a ballsy, quick stage. But to do it there was incredible. Remember what we're talking about here, and it's sometimes easy to forget, is a very young man indeed. And all of those character traits that we've talked about, you know, all of them were absolutely true. Uh, you know, He was slightly reckless. He was absolutely ballsy. He was as brave as they come. But the one thing he wasn't was he wasn't stupid. He wasn't anyone's no. fool. And what he did between that event in New Zealand and winning the championship was he grew up and he found a bit of maturity and he used that intelligence. You know, he knew, he proved himself. And with all those crashes early on in his career, he proved to himself and to others that he had the potential. Then what he had to do was go and, if you like, convert that potential. And that's what he did. He used his intelligence. He wasn't completely reckless and he certainly wasn't stupid and he grew up. Over those two or three years, as you say, he established himself as the man to beat on every rally. He established a psychological advantage on every rally and he used it ruthlessly. He did. And ironically, you know, I mean, he won, obviously, won New Zealand 93, 94. And then finally, in 94, he won the RAC rally, uh, the the one that we'd all been waiting for so long. And exactly what you've just said there, Colin, we could see the progression because he led the RAC in 91, 92, 93. He crashed in Grisdale. rolled after that crest in 91. He crashed on a, there was a silly road accident that probably wasn't Colin's fault, but didn't have the temperament perhaps to bring it all together. Engine problem in 93. He won it in 94 and he dominated it in 94. And I remember standing at Chester Racecourse, listening to Colin say, next year, I want to come back and be fighting for the championship. And of course he was in 95. And that win in 95 was the most incredible. You couldn't have written that story to Pundashore, the longest stage, 35 miles. He has a puncture. He stops to change the tyre. And there are spectators all around him. The spectators lifted the car up. They didn't even need to jack it up. The speckies lifted the car up so they could change the wheel quickly. Uh, he'd probably get done for outside assistance now or something. But uh, And he carried on. And then there was another problem in Newcastle. And he broke the front suspension. And he won. And he kept losing this rally and coming back. And at no point in that event did you ever think that he wasn't going to win that rally. And I remember he said to, to Jerry Williams, our Daily Mail reporter at the time, that it would have taken a nuclear bomb to stop him from winning that event. And that captured everything for me. That was what really turned Britain on to to rallying to Colin. And ironically, he probably shouldn't have won the championship that year because Carlos had been injured and he'd missed. He'd had to sit Rally Australia out. Uh, So really, Carlos should probably have won the championship that year. But there were a number of championship years, the years after, that Colin lost that he should have won. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? He had three more years with Subaru after that that championship. He was usually in the hunts. Why did it not quite come together? Was that, I guess the legend is that, well, it was Colin McRae, so he made too many mistakes and he couldn't quite do it. Is that a fair impression? Or? No, I, it, undoubtedly there were mistakes. In, certainly 96. 96 was catastrophic. He nearly lost his job in 96. There were a lot of mistakes and that cost Eric Ringer his job. You know, something had to change at the end of the year and Derek was, was kicked out in, and Nicky came in, Nicky Gris came in. 96 was terrible. 97, the, the first year of the World Rally Cars, Subaru struggled like hell with an engine problem. The cam belt was a, a real issue, area of concern and caused considerable technical problems there. Colin should have been champion in 97, without a shadow of a doubt. 
Um, and 98, that was his final year. That always there'd already been contact with Malcolm Wilson at Ford at the end of 97 going into 98. So I'm just not sure that in 98, Colin was... Of course he was there and he wanted to win the championship, but there was this consideration in the back of his mind from early in that year that he was going to move to Ford. Um, and there was something else was, was on the horizon. Um, so six or one half a dozen of the other. Uh, yeah, there were some definitely some crashes through 96, but 97, the car cost him, uh, cost him a championship. And the move to Ford was huge news at the time. New car in the focus, not expected to be an easy season. He won third time out on the safari. And still there was this, this kind of momentum building, wasn't there? There was a feeling that him leaving Subaru might lead to some difficult times, but straight away... There was the star quality again, getting, well, in fact, back-to-back wins. Before we talk about that, let's hear from Malcolm Wilson about what Colin McRae brought to the team. He was a massive part of the team because it was a big, at the time, when Ford were changing from the Escort to the Focus. And, of course, with the launch of such an important product, Ford's most successful car, the Escort, uh, the timing was perfect to get, to get Colin on board. So, of course, you know, very early days for us as well. It was our first car that we developed from scratch. So it's fair to say we had a, a few little teething issues. And, of course, we knew about them from Colin. Uh, but having said that, I think certainly the, the memory for me is the way that he approached, tackled and won Safari Rally in 1999. Well, only the third event in the car. Most difficult event in, in the World Championship. And the way that he just uh, nurtured and looked after the car um, to the point where, you know, Carlos could not understand it because Toyota in those days had such a reputation for building cars to win Safari. That was their big emphasis. And, of course, Carlos couldn't believe that, you know, he, he said to Uwe Anderson, you know, when is that bloody Ford going to break? It's impossible to bring a new car to Safari Rally and win. And then, of course, you know, Carlos crashed trying to, to catch Colin. But I think what a lot of people uh, never really understood about Colin, because uh, Colin always had this, give this impression of being you know, very wild, flamboyant in his car, lots of uh, accidents. And, but if you look at the way that Colin could drive on all the difficult rallies, those were Colin's forte. They were his real strong point. So if you look at all the Acropolises, the Cypresses, the Argentinas, Safaris, that's where he, had his most, he was the most successful. For all Colin's flair and sort of wild driving style behind the wheel, uh, he was just without question the best guy of understanding what mechanical sympathy you needed uh, for the difficult rallies. And, you know, he won in 99 and then he followed it up again in 2002, which was the last time the Safari was in, in the championship. That was such an important event at that point in time in the championship that those victories were so so special uh, to me particularly obviously the one in 99 but then as well to win the last one last time it was in the WRC it was so many uh, great memories and from that but there's some pretty good memories from the parties as well afterwards so from what Malcolm Wilson says there it's slightly different to the the, the sort of shorthand assumption that Colin McRae is just a quick driver isn't it the fact that he was able to bring that technical expertise and the ability to win Safari unexpectedly you know that's not a rally you win by being reckless is it it's not and one of the the key points in in that would have to to be Nicky Grist uh and this new sort of pace note thing that I talked to Nicky and there was a there's a 
a story in in motorsport news about this where, where Nicky explains how on the safari he really had to slow colin down because colin was using similar sort of pace notes to to european events um and and nick had done a lot of work with yuha kankan and, and these guys that toyota you know the absolute african experts uh and nick said to colin you know you need something actually the word stop in the notes so that you stop the car and it, it absolutely emphasizes just how bad this is um and that was quite a big change uh and it worked for them uh and they uh, obviously they won the the safari uh i think th- three times and then they won the acropolis four times events that colin mcrae really had no business winning but what's interesting just listening to the stories you're telling david is that clearly colin was a man who was quite willing to listen he was willing to take on board other people's advice that's even nowadays, you know, with the drivers who are completely different, perhaps don't have the attributes that McRae had, a lot of them can't take on board that sort of advice, that sort of guidance. But McRae, even although he was an established star, world rally champion, hottest property in world rallying, still realising himself that there was room for improvement in those days. Yeah, there was. And you're absolutely right in the fact that Colin listened. He understood the relationship in, in the car. I remember a story from Robert Reed when Robert, competed on the the Hackle Rally, a small rally in Scotland in 1990, very early in their career. Uh, and great story from, from Robert. And Robert said, you know, he was the perfect driver because literally you would get to a junction in the road section and Colin would sit there and just wait to be told where to go. And honestly, he, you know, it was great. You know, obviously there were difficulties in, in the car with, with Nicky. You know, we saw them part, part ways in 2002. But yeah, he listened. That's absolutely, and that's definitely one of the things that's, that's overlooked. And, you know, one of the, the things that I feel is massively overlooked and this misconception that Colin was hard on the car. He was hard on the car in that he bounced off a few trees uh, here and there and took wheels off. But in terms of mechanical sympathy, he wasn't. You know, there's a, there's a great story from, from Dario Franchitti, this Dario had a, a, a Ferrari F40 and McRae asked for a, for a shot in the in the car and Dario slid the keys across the table and Dario jumped in the passenger seat. You know, a lot of faith going into to this. And Dario said, you know, just from driving that car, they drove very quickly, but such sympathy just in every gear change. And Colin felt what a car was doing and he could he could talk to a car almost. Does that sound a bit mad? No, it doesn't. Because, but what I'm about to say might sound even madder. But it is, this is genuinely one of my earliest recollections of McRae and Ira. And it stuck in my mind because I couldn't work it out. And it was, I think it was Tomorrow's World in the, the mid-90s. They did a feature on how the brain, how, how certain people can be taught to do things. Other people, they just, it comes naturally. And there's, there's actually no scientific explanation for why some people can do some things and others can't do others. So they're speaking to this very, very well-regarded neurologist. And he'd done, uh, he'd done basically some work with McRae. And he came on the program and, and, and he basically his conclusion was, talking to the presenter, I could have you in a, a world rally car, in a rally car, for eight hours a day for the rest of your life and you would not be able to do what McRae does. Because the basic process is that the eye sees what is going on, and there's a message sent from the brain to the hands, the hands react. With McRae, they couldn't find that message going to the hands. The hands just reacted to what the eyes were seeing. He said it is almost as if in McRae's brain, there's a bypass. It's subconscious processing, isn't it? Subconscious process is what we're saying. It's that ability to understand a car and what a car can do. And this this, this well-regarded neurologist 
could not explain because it just, in terms of the laws of science, the laws of physiology, you know, there is no explanation for it. But he said, you cannot teach this man what he's doing. No. It is and natural. You, and you could see that. His, his driving style was so instinctive and his, his ability to feel grip and know where the grip was and to drive a car on the limit in that, to that grip, to the tire, to what the car had got to give was uncanny. Uncanny. And one of the, the trickiest bits for me is towards the end of Colin's career in 03, the cars had changed so much. You know, we'd got these smaller restrictors. We'd got a lot more hydraulic and electronic management of the differentials, the transmission and everything. And that really wasn't Colin. Colin was a scruff of the neck, pick the car up and just drive it. And that's where he really relied on that natural ability. And to some extent now, you could dial the car in to, to make it more comfortable for a driver. And Colin never really got that. You know, this, this Richard Burns was the first that started to drive the car, a rally car, more like a racing car. So you'd arrive at the apex with a tiny bit of understeer. Well, that was not Colin at all. The 03 season was actually quite sad. You know, we saw in Finland in 03, he was brilliant and he probably should have won that rally. But over the spread of the season, it, it wasn't Colin. And he struggled with that car and struggled with that team. You know, t- French teams have a real... We, we know very well that the engineers engineer the car and the drivers drive them. And, you know, Colin was such an instinctive driver and such a great engineer to bring out what he wanted from the car. You know, there was a, there's another thing here that... Colin was, was, was seen as this kind of lazy driver that didn't do a lot of testing. And I think he kind of really quite liked that aura, that kind of character that people would look at him and think, ah, it's so natural. But behind the scenes, he worked. He worked hard. And he just knew he brought a team around him and he knew where to, to employ his skills and his effort. But he, he certainly put the work in. There was a stubbornness about him. There was a real stubbornness and a... And a, and a... Uh, you know, <laughs> I was very fortunate once. I got to sit in a 6R4 with Colin. It was a Scottish motorsport show. It was actually 2007. Might have been 2006. Uh, and we were in the 6R4, which scared the heck out of me because it was basically an engine, wasn't it? You know, it was an engine. You sat in front of the engine. And the, the one thing apart from Colin's driving that I remember about this was the slightly incongruous gear stick. It had like a golf ball top on it. it was like those cheap ones you used to be able to get from Halfords. It was very <laughs> odd. Very odd indeed. But what I do remember about that, so we were we were mic'd up, we were doing a radio mic. I remember shrieking a lot as I do, sadly. But I remember being absolutely transfixed by by watching his hands and his feet in the six R four. And it was astonishing. But there was a tight hairpin in this stage. We were only supposed to go around twice. The first three times we went round, he stalled on the hairpin and I could see him getting more and more angry. And he wasn't gonna stop until he because it was clearly a different car from what he'd been driving. He wasn't going to stop until he got that hairpin right. I think it was about the fifth or sixth time. And we just absolutely glided beautifully around this hairpin, touching the, the apex, you know, this wonderful oversteer. And off we went in first gear because it was a difficult gearbox on the 6R4. Um, and it was at that point, like, that's enough. We'll stop now, Call. That's it. You know, but he was going, we'd have gone around there all day, all day until he got that right because he had that determination to get things right. You know, and he wasn't going to stop until he did get them right. But he was also so very clever at playing the kind of psychological game. In 95, when him and Carlos were going head-to-head for the championship, there's obviously the big issue in Spain where team orders had had, had told Carlos he was going to win the rally, and of course he did, and there was this big row. But when they came to the RAC test, everything was sorted. Colin, it was water under the bridge, and they just got on with it. But Colin was great at playing the mind games. I can't remember who told me this story. They'd both done their tests and they were in the debrief. 
and Carlos wasn't happy with the suspension settings for one particular condition. I don't know if it was wet, dry, whatever. And they talked around Lapia, then had gone around and around the table. And what do you think? Which, you know, which suspension? What should we put? What dampers? What roll bars? And at this point, Colin allegedly had leaned back on the chair, put his feet up on the table and started to read a copy of Autosport, obviously, Ed. Uh, (laughs) And so in sheer frustration, Carlos turned to Colin and said, what are you going to do, Colin? What do you think? And Colin, in his typical laconic style, laid back, said, hey, I'll take the blue ones. <laughs> and that was it. And, you know, that was another nail in Carlos's coffin that year because Colin knew exactly what he wanted from, from the car. And he would get it from the car, but he wasn't going to share it. And it was great. You know, that shows just how he traded on that kind of lazy, laid back kind of attitude. But he wasn't. He was right there and he knew just what he was doing. And he destabilized Carlos beautifully and then absolutely destroyed him on the event sorry Carlos but he did one of the words you used a few minutes ago about that 2003 season with Citroen was that it was a little bit sad because rallying was kind of changing around him we talked about the huge popularity of Colin McRae is this all kind of tied together that not only was rallying moving away from the kind of driver that McRae was and that's why he ended up suddenly from being one of the sport's biggest stars to not having a having a drive in WRC that also coincides with a slide in popularity, doesn't it, of rallying? And admittedly, Definitely. having a strong season this year, so it, yeah. it seems like it's on the up, but it's a long way to go to get up to where it was, certainly in in Britain, where rallying was was a big deal in the McRae era and also with Richard Burns coming through as well. So can we kind of gather up McRae and rallying as a whole as a as a, as a bigger a bigger trend that that what McRae exemplified is something rallying's may be lost totally 100 percent. because if you look what happened after 2000 colin left in 2003 2004 was the start of sebastian loeb's nine years of domination and it we lost there was not petter solberg was the closest thing we got to a character like colin but you know it goes back to everything that we said before you know there's not the the, the wherewithal anymore to to produce this guy but it didn't matter if colin was crashing or whatever colin would get out the car and he would tell you a story you know, half the time you couldn't publish them, but there was such charisma there. Uh, and not just charisma, you know, there was a fear factor because you had to totally be on your metal when you got your questions ready with Colin. Because if you asked a stupid question, you would be out of town. There was no time for, he did not suffer fools gladly at all. I've always respected drivers like that, actually. I yeah, feel 100%. I, sometimes when you hear a stupid, obviously nobody at Autobot ever asks a stupid question, but <laughs> other journalists sometimes ask a stupid question. And obviously for me, it's more F1 drivers I deal with. And you just feel like, do you know what? The drivers are just talented. Yeah, exactly. And, and Every that, now and again you get that, but it, it shows that, it's about, look, I'm operating at a high standard, so you better yeah. operate at a high standard as a journalist. Exactly. Most recently, you know, we had the same with Robert Kibitzer. And, you know, if you asked him a stupid question, you got a very, very swift and short reply, and you weren't asked back again. Uh, <laughs> and and that was Colin. And I like you, Ed, I, I absolutely love that. I, I'd slightly put a different slant on 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 the demise of Colin McRae's, if, if you like, in rallying. Remember Colin McRae was at his best when tobacco companies were involved. And, you know, I worked for a tobacco company, and I'll tell you that, you know, uh, you never wanted to see a car crash. You never wanted to hear a driver saying something controversial. But every time Colin opened his mouth, every time uh, we, we saw him on the stages, uh, there was coverage. There was coverage, and, you know, things have changed. So the cars changed, but also the requirements of the manufacturers changed. When the tobacco companies went, you had the, the emergence of the corporate driver, the driver who's been corporately trained in PR. 
and the whole uh, environment, driver team rally environment changed for a few years. And it didn't change for the better. You know, the cars didn't look as spectacular. They looked like race cars on rally stages. Um, we're now, thank goodness, going back to rally cars on rally stages. Uh, but we, but, uh, along with that, we had a different requirement off the drivers. And, and the likes of Colin now with his, his, his you know, slightly um, anti-establishment ways, uh, you know, it just wouldn't, it wouldn't be tolerated. You know, the young drivers that are coming through are trained to within an inch of their lives on what to say and what not to say and how to represent their brands well. Whereas Colin was given the freedom because it worked for his sponsors. It worked for the early ProDrive sponsors who were Rothmans. It worked for the Gitan sponsors even in the latter days with, with Citroen. Remember, he was in a Gitan car, wasn't he? Yeah, For a little while. Um, you know, it worked. It worked clearly for 555 in the 555 days. But yeah, the whole the whole environment has changed, and, and and I think you know we are now in a good place in terms of rallying. But we struggled for a decade, uh, and perhaps part of that was down to to the fact that tobacco companies went. Therefore, the likes of Colin weren't encouraged, weren't given the time of day anymore. Well, on that very subject, here's former Subaru WRC technical director David Lapworth. It definitely wasn't the PR man's dream, and yet. It's exactly what the fans wanted, you know. If you were to train somebody, you know, the modern kind of Formula One driver, you'd probably try and train out of Colin all the things that made him popular. And you kind of see the same thing in somebody like Kimmy these days. Um, the way he went about it, he was only interested in doing things if they were fun. He was only interested in going flat out. He wasn't really interested in rules or doing things anybody else's way or hard work or any of the, the the stuff that a professional is supposed to take seriously. He just loved driving cars fast. He loved head-to-head competitions. He was flamboyant in the way that he drove the car. He was uh, less than serious when he was out of the car. Um, and so it was it was fun as far as anybody watching was concerned. You never knew what was coming next. There's a kind of chicken and egg story going on with Colin, I guess, and the and the computer game, um, which is interesting to illustrate all this. There's no doubt about Colin's popularity. I mean, we, that's the whole point of this, isn't it? That he still stands out as probably the name that that people with a casual interest in rallying are most likely to know. Um, you can you can um, blame some of that on the computer game. But you have to think, why was the computer game called Colin McRae? He was already on the journey towards something like the kind of iconic status that he's got now when the computer game came along, and that's why it was called Colin McRae. Um, uh, So probably his biggest contribution was to make the sport more popular and to appeal to a bunch of people who are perhaps less serious about tramping out into the middle of a forest in Wales for the pure interest of watching a rally car go by at two o'clock in the morning in the dark and the rain, and more about the fun and the spectacle and the um, the kind of flamboyance or whatever that you would call it that went with Colin. There have been better drivers and there have certainly been more professional drivers and I can think of somebody like, I don't know, Carlos, who put much more into the sport than somebody like Colin did. But it's the character of Colin that probably did more for the the popularity of the sport. Now, one thing we have touched on briefly is the impact of the game, the Colin McRae series of games. I think the first one was 98, and then there was a whole series of them. From the kind of inside of rallying, did, was there a, an impact felt 
from that in that this was he was the the totemic rally driver because for all we talk about you know the great fins etc etc they're the kind of drivers that are talked about in the sport but McRae was talked about in it and outside of rallying in a yeah. way that nobody else really has has come close to since and and he's still a byword for rallying even 10 years after after his death and 14 years after he was last a world rally championship regular I think there is a, there's a very big part of that that not a very big part a part of that that is down to the to the game and for sure you know I think David Lapworth said you know you need to look at why it was called Colin McRae rally and we talked about this on the way in you know it wasn't called Carlos Sainz rally because that wasn't what it was about you know it was about bringing a new generation of fans in and Colin's way of driving did just that it made you want to get into this game and drive like Colin uh, and for a long time, this, you know, an incredible and a very now well-told story is large parts of America and all around the world where, you know, WRC is not huge in America. They saw Colin as this Lara Croft style character that, you know, they didn't believe that this guy actually existed. Uh, and then I remember, was it 2006 or seven when he did the X Games? Oh. And he rolled, he was fighting the last stage. You know, it's him With and Travis, Travis, Travis Pastrana. Yeah. yeah. And Colin rolled in the last but one corner or something and finished second to Travis. And talking to Nicky Grist, Nicky said, you know, this was main news on coast-to-coast channels on 6 o'clock that evening in America. And, you know, they were sponsored by No Fear, and it was the perfect fit. And that showed more than anything that this guy was real, and this is what Colin McRae was about. You know, just saying he rolled perhaps doesn't do it justice because it was just (laughs) the most astonishing piece of driving. And we've talked about it so many times, intuitive driving. He's come into the stadium. The stage went round the back of the stadium and then came into the stadium. It was in Los Angeles. There was about 80,000 people there screaming. And these cars came in over a jump, tight left, I seem to remember, over the jump into the stadium. Uh, And the car did roll. But before it even got back on its wheels, he was engaging second gear. And you could see it from the onboards. They were running onboards as well. He never missed a beat. He never missed a beat. And the car and the Americans found this incredible because Americans roll and it takes them two or three days to get over the roll. McRae, it (laughs) took him a split second to work out what to do. And he was on and he was heading towards the flying finish. It was astonishing. It did more for rallying in North America than just about any other piece of rallying. It wasn't even a proper rally. It was just a... Uh, if you like a super special but stage. But in fairness, that's what happened on a computer game, isn't it? You it know, is. you would roll your thing and you would, if you didn't press reset, you would just crack on. And that was, you know, that was that crossover that people could see. The computer game is almost real and it's Colin's life. And and what, what we've sadly missed uh, since, you know, since Colin left us is that in rallying is that ability to uh, communicate with, with the generation that Colin communicated with. You know, he, he gave a whole new generation an insight into what, is possible with rallying and to how exciting, how dramatic it can be, how much of a hero the drivers can be. Um, and we're struggling. We're still struggling to, to, to make rallying relevant to that late teens, early 20s audience. And Colin did that uh, through almost, you know, it was almost accidental with the, the, the game. No one, I don't think, could have anticipated the impact that the game would have on rallying. But for, you know, for a period, there was a young generation of, of computer gamers growing up, yeah, wanting to be computer gamers, but also wanting to drive Subarus, to drive Fords, and to be rally drivers. And, you know, we've struggled since the height of that kind of, that, that mad rally frenzy 
to, to, to re-establish that it's connection sim- with the younger audience. Th- that's a- exactly. There's nobody for people to look at and say, I want to be Colin McRae. Yeah, and it wasn't just the driving. It, it was the character. It was the Scottish, the laconicness, the accent. It was the... Uh, he had a huge appeal. He personally had enormous, enormous appeal. There was something very charismatic in a laid-back way about Colin McRae. Absolutely. You, can, you can't overstate when you walked somewhere with Colin people would part and people would literally... It was almost like they just wanted to touch the guy. I've seen it once, probably. Carlos Sainz, when we were in Spain, I did a feature with Carlos, and it was the same sort of thing there. But wherever Colin went in the world, people just wanted to see him. And he could change, he could brighten a room. You know, we're getting a bit artistic here, perhaps. But it was, honestly, no, it, it was incredible. And what what I think uh, is, is absolute testament to that is the fact that we still travel the world with the World Rally Championship. We go to Portugal... And the uh, the FAF stage, Faffy, yeah. you know, there's that huge Scottish flag every year yeah. painted on the road. I, I don't think there's a single event I go to where there's not some flag, some Colin McRae supporters club that you come across. He is still revered everywhere that we go around the world, uh, particularly in South America. I remember going with uh, Colin's wife, Alison, to, to the local hospital because the McRae charity was donating a, a piece of equipment, uh, x-ray equipment to the local hospital there. Uh, and it was remarkable. It was remarkable the, um, the the memories that people were sharing of Colin there, and the regard in which they still hold him. Yeah, and that that that's saying something about the man himself when he was. It is, us. and I'm I'm not really sure how much he knew of all of that either. I don't think he it didn't certainly it didn't bother him. He wasn't you know he wasn't in it for the fame at all. He liked the fact that every now and then he was recognised, but he didn't. I don't think he could have realised the, the massive impact across the world that he'd he'd had on on motorsport. And the McRae Subaru story wasn't necessarily over when he died on the 15th of September 2007. There was a possibility of a comeback. So here's David Richards to explain a little bit about how close that was to becoming a reality. In 2007, we were having uh, long discussions about the following year and how we were going to organise the team. And I still, in those days, spent I used to see Colin quite often and he came down and we went to Goodwood together. We actually flew down to Goodwood together and his helicopter picked me up at home and we went down to Goodwood and we had dinner together there. It was a, it was a press function, I think, announcing the, the Festival of Speed or doing something like that. I can't remember what precisely. And we talked at some length about Colin uh, joining us for uh, the following year. And um, he wants to give the World Championship one last big try we were having difficult times with the Subaru in those days. There was a technical issues we had to overcome and uh, the regulations were working against us. Um, and we decided that uh, uh, it would be a, a great combination to see Colin come back to Subaru and have a, have a go again the following year. And uh, he, we'd agreed to test the following week. He was actually coming back to test the car uh, the week afterwards. And uh, David Lapworth was speaking to him on the Saturday morning just prior to his unfortunate helicopter accident and uh, who knows what would have happened Colin McRae back in a Subaru his old driving style one last big push but that's uh, that we'll never find out and also another key player in that would have been Robert Reed, who was potentially going to be his co-driver for, the, for this return I did actually compete with Colin once I was standing in a field in the farm we were lifting potatoes one morning and the phone rang and it was McRae all right, Rab, what are you doing this weekend? Fancy doing the hackle? So we did the event in uh, Colin's Uncle Shug's Mark II Escort, which was a decent club car with a Pinto engine in it. 
Colin had some spare callways lying in the garage, so it was always intended to be a bit of a laugh and a, a pretty low-key affair. The Hackle was my local Scottish Rally Championship event, and in typical Perthshire autumn style, it bucketed with rain from morning till night. I can remember there being several inches of water swilling about in the footwell all day. So we ended up winning the rally against a decent Scottish Rally Championship entry and quite a few four-wheel drive cars, which raised a couple of eyebrows. I also did a fair bit of testing with Colin in the early Subaru days. Then in late 07, when he was talking to Subaru again, he asked if I'd be interested in doing 2008 with him. We agreed to do a test and see how it went, but sadly that never happened. Um, And I don't really know if I would have done it or not. Well, let's play a little bit of of what if. What might have happened had McRae come back? Let's say it was a full season in the Subaru. The 2008 Subaru wasn't brilliant. Chris Atkinson and Petter Solberg had a difficult time in it. We talked about how rallying had changed. Now it's one of these tantalising what could have happened, but with the reality of of never lived up to that. I I have a feeling you're right there, Ed. I, I think Colin would have struggled because, you know, the way that the rules had changed a little bit, it, it would have still been quite difficult. It wasn't really Colin's car. It was a very different car from the Group A 555 uh, from 10 years or 15 years earlier. Um, and I, I think it would have been difficult. But one thing it would have done, it would have returned Subaru to the glory days because regardless of the result, you know, when Colin went around the world in that car, he would have put a show on. And that, you know, in many ways, that was perhaps even more important because that's what they missed. Absolutely. And, and you know, it wasn't that bad a car. I think Atkinson got five or six podiums that year in that car. And he, he actually outperformed Solberg with his very limited experience in a World Rally car, Chris Atkinson. So it's difficult to say what Colin would have done, but I, I totally agree with you. Remember, we're right in the middle of Loeb and Citroen's dominance at that point. Uh, it, it would have been very difficult. But what we saw when Colin did make comebacks, we saw it in the Skoda in particular. And remember, remember that final rally he did for Skoda in Australia, where had it not been for a mechanic making a bit of a mistake, a big mistake, in fact, uh, he would have taken a podium for Skoda in Rally Australia, which would have been the most astonishing result. He was capable, always capable, of doing something special and unexpected. So it is so difficult to say what might have happened, but but you know it would have been special. You're, you talk about that that Skoda outing in, in Australia, and I remember talking to Nicky about it, and Nicky said when Skoda came back to him after, he did the RAC, Rally GB was the first event, and the PR guy or the marketing guy came to Nick and said, you know, from that one event, we got more PR than we'd had from 23 years of motorsport competition previous to that. And in Australia, it was unbelievable. The interest when he was running second, fighting with Harry Rovenpera, and they would have had second. I'm sure they would have taken second in the end. And DR was a promoter then, uh, and he was looking to piece a deal together with Skoda and with Colin for, for what would have been 2006. It didn't happen in the end, but... It was incredible. It was such a shame, you know, he went out of Australia on the Sunday lunchtime and the sense of loss in the service park from that, you know, we'd lost that story was unbelievable. And and, and we were all based in the Sheraton Hotel at the top of the hill in Perth. I remember at the time, I think Colin was probably doing a column with us. So kind of chasing Colin a little bit around the hotel uh, to, to get hold of him uh, to do the column because uh, he'd gone out at sort of 11 o'clock in the morning, mid-morning. So a quick debrief, and then it was lunchtime, and Colin was thirsty, uh, and there was a there was a, a whole bar of beer to drink, and he, him, Alison, and Sharon, and, and Nick, and they all 
got through Alistair as well. They got through a lot of beer. Uh, yeah. and the and, Irish bar. Yeah, Fenians. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and I remember some pretty interesting interviews with Colin um, that that evening. And I think you had a special memory from that. Special memory from that night. I, that was the, it was the fi- it was the final rally of the year, wasn't it? So yep. we were having the the end of year knees up, if you like, in the Sheraton. Uh, so I take my kilt along. Uh, as you do to these things, to to you know to sell as you do, as I do, contractual uh, obligation for, for well, Scotland, uh, Scottish uh, people. as a Scottish person, yeah, absolutely. Any excuse, and the kilt comes out, and all the rest, the uh, the boxers come off. I dressed up, ready for the the end of season two, uh, and we'd gone across the road to the Irish bar. So this was about seven in the evening. So what do we reckon now? Seven hours. Colin has been in the bar for. So I walk in wearing my kilt, and I stand at the bar, and Colin's in one corner with Alison, and he comes striding up to me. And he puts his hand up my kilt and grabs me where no man should ever grab you. <laughs> and he the look on his face and he goes, Colin, you've just cost me $20. Why are you wearing those boxer shorts? Now, I, I'm not a pretty short, but, but I knew things would get a bit messy that evening. So I'd put a pair of boxer shorts on. Why have you got anything on under your kilt? I went, Colin, look, you know, I know I'm not having any of that. Take them off. <laughs> and, you know, maybe a bit later on I might but right now I'm leaving my boxer shorts on thank you take them off Alison comes up so the two of them then try to rip my boxer shorts off I'm, I'm wedged I'm being held up between the two of them he then grabs my ski and do now a drunken Scotsman with a knife in his hand waving it around the places he shouldn't wave things around he basically cuts my boxer shorts off with the barman, who's actually the manager, screaming, we don't have a license for this. What sort of <laughs> license you can get for that, I've no idea. But and the boxer shorts come off. McCray you know, waves them above his head and goes, $20, I'll have that next time I see you call. And that was it. And I think the, the evening went downhill from there, didn't it? It did, <laughs> yes, for all of us. That sounds unbroadcastable, so uh, best move on. But, but it did seem in those years after... The WRC is a, is a full-time thing. He did all sorts of things. He raced at Le Mans for Pro Drive and the Ferrari. Did a good job there. He did Dakar. He was able, seemed to be able to indulge his his passion for for rallying. So he seemed to be a fairly yeah. fairly happy with his lot. He didn't. He, he didn't seem that there was this anger that it would all come to an end at the, no. at the top level. Because you know, I think I would think the one thing that frustrated Colin was that he hadn't essentially decided when his career would end. Uh, and there few, was definitely you get to do that. Don't absolutely, they? no, that's true. And <laughs> none of us do actually. <laughs> do you know something I don't? But that was one of the frustrations. And you know, he was frustrated because he should have won more championships. He, for sure, he should. But it was. At that time, it was really nice because the children were young and they, you know, they still had the family time. And this is one thing that we haven't really touched on much is, is Holly and and Johnny and Alison and Colin, this family guy that, you know, was tremendous because, you know, you'd see this guy out on an event doing all these sort of swashbuckling things. And he was a great dad as well. And, you know, just to listen to some of the memories from the family, I've been very privileged to to get to know the family quite well into with work and stuff and, and what have you. And the sense of loss today is just as as big as it ever was. It's incredible. Uh, you know, him and Johnny were absolutely peas in a pod. And you think to to what Johnny would have been now? I don't know, fifteen, sixteen for sure. He would have been doing what Calais Rovenpere is doing. And it's you know we all sit back and think on 10 years and you know for us we get on with our lives but this family was was ripped apart by what happened but at that time 
I think Colin was 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 happy. He'd come to terms with the fact that the championship was essentially over, even though there was this deal with ProDrive coming. Uh, and you know, the big thing for Colin at that time was his own car. You know, he'd built this R4, um, and it was everything that Colin wanted. It was, I think, it was a two and a half liter, naturally aspirated, high revving, noisy engine with a pretty standard four wheel drive system, sequential box, and it made the driver work. Uh, and it made a lot of noise and it was pretty spectacular to drive and he loved it and that was just he was just in the middle of marketing and working with that when the accident happened it was a kind of sign again of his rebellious streak wasn't it it was him saying these new world rally cars they're too easy to drive they're not spectacular enough i'll give you i'll give you what a rally car should be i remember seeing it at goodwood he took it to goodwood to the festival of speed uh and it was spectacular and it was it was colin mccray embodied in a car and it was it was astonishing. It was the car showed the same characteristics that McRae showed throughout his career. And it was him saying, you know, two's up to the establishment. This is what a rally car should be. Let's hear from Alistair McRae, Colin's brother and a very good rally driver in his own right. Nin- 1998 with Subaru, you know, when we competed together, uh, that was probably you know a fairly special event. Probably not just for me and Colin, but for my dad as well. You know, to have the two of us in the same team to to work together a bit in the testing. You know, it's probably the first time you could ask him. You know, what do you reckon to the car here? And he could tell you because he'd just done the test the day before. So, you know, that was all good and, and, you know, fairly special to do that in the same team. You know, I mean, obviously Colm's still one of the most recognised drivers now. Uh, and I guess it's back to the same thing again. It's the way he drove a car, the the commitment, the, the give it all, give it everything to try and win. He wasn't a man for, you know, settling for second or third. He could do it when he had to. But you know his his want was to win, so I think that and and obviously the you know the computer game. He was the first one that had his name on a computer game. So the younger generation knew who he was from the game as well as from rallying. So uh, I think that's probably why he's uh, he's still remembered the way he is. You know, obviously he was the the first British world champion. So uh, that's obviously going to be something that sticks in people's mind as well. Uh, and you know the way he did it on the final event, there was always a bit of controversy with the Catalonia with the team orders and so on prior to that so to come out on on rally gb and and uh, and win that you know quite comprehensively and take the championship it's, uh, was was tremendous i think he was the people's champion not just in the uk but i think throughout the world you know whether you were argentina portugal spain you know he was uh, he was a he was a driver that everybody admired and and, and watched what was good yeah obviously towards the end of the career he had the the drives with the citroen the kind of one-offs with citroen then I think the Skoda was probably one of the better events, you know. He didn't get the result, but he was he was fighting in a position to win in a car which hadn't been in that position before, and you know, in the final day. So uh, that was that was pretty special, and it showed he still had a lot to give in the sport for sure. I think that's I think you know he, he obviously won he won one world championship and could have won more, but uh, it's everything's got to come together, you know. Championships not one event, it's. It's over a full season, uh, and you know for sure. Sometimes mistakes were made on the driver's side, sometimes on the team side, and it just didn't all come together again. But you know he was always there fighting for it, uh, and you know probably should have won more. Listening to to Alistair there, there's one memory that I remember really well. What an amazing big brother! Can you imagine Colin McRae's big brother? I remember Alistair telling me this one story that they both used to do a lot of stuff on bikes, really good for training, what have you, and enduro bikes and what have you. Um, but the the theory was that Alistair was a little bit more naturally talented on a on a bike than Colin was. 
uh, and they had this big circuit, off, off-road circuit that they used to go around, and they would race for lap after lap, and it was proper hell for leather stuff uh, on these enduro bikes. And uh, Alistair remembers coming into this last corner, they'd agreed a three-lap, four-lap race, whatever, uh, and Colin came charging up the inside of him, uh, and the pair of them were they knocked off the bikes completely on the floor and Alistair had managed to grab hold of his bike quicker and he was trying to get back on the bike and he couldn't move his leg and he's like what on earth's going on I, I, I can't get on the bike and Colin couldn't get to his bike so he got hold of Alistair's leg and he was hanging on and he wasn't going to let Alistair get on the bike he wasn't going to lose that race to his brother and to me you know that just absolutely embodies Colin that you know he was so competitive but just such a brilliant guy as well. Well, there's a huge number of stories on, on Colin McRae. I think at this stage it's worth hearing from some of the stars of the current WRC, their memories of Colin McRae. Let's start off with, with Chris Meek, of course, who, who knew Colin. And he was basically a bit of a protege, wasn't he? Absolutely, yeah. He, li- he lived with Colin for, for a couple of years. And and yeah, you know, I think the story we've got coming up is, is one of the, the, the ones that we could publish or, or whatever there are numerous stories that we won't be uh but yeah, yeah i'm sure chris had two of the, the best years of his life there here's chris meek when you, you think back in that era when i was starting out and colin when i got involved with colin and living up at his place in lanark it was a surreal time when i look back on it and you have to sort of pinch yourself that that all happened it was an era in my lifetime you know and before that i grew up as a kid no different than some of these guys standing here calling like another I was one of those yeah and shouting at Colin yeah so the way the thing turned out was mad but uh yeah I just look back at that era be forever grateful for the like I keep saying not only the rally experience that it gave me and the opportunity give me but the the life experience of being being around him it was something something different you know he was a pretty special bloke to be around wasn't he he was uh, not many dull moments. No, not many. Um, how? What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, just live for the moment, and everything was just done on the click of a finger. Uh, we're going through that today, right? Let's go into it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there was never a dull moment there, and the best thing about it was you never knew what was coming. Yes. Is so. is the one special memory that? sticks with you from either the time at home or from what he did in the car I keep saying the, the night we went in the 6R4 6R4 the escort gearbox broke in it yeah. it was a nice escort so we said Chris go and pull the, the 6R4 sitting down parked the bottom of the shed go and pull it out pulled it out put a bit of fuel in it checked the pressures fired it up fired up first go checked the oil and came out it was about half 11 that night I said right hop in we'll go for a run I I never witnessed anything like it. Yeah. And gravel tires, old, with ten-year-old gravel tires, all around the back roads of Lanark. It was mad. Some noise as well. I yeah, it was just mad, mad. But anyway, that's uh, luckily the local constabulary weren't in force that night. They would, have, they would have needed something else other than a car to catch them. But it was, it was good. Here's Sebastian Ogier. Ah, Colin McRae. I think uh, I think like a lot of people, I remember him as a very enthusiastic driver. <laughs> I mean, and uh, very spectacular. And uh, I like this in doubt, flat out. That's definitely Colin. That was always, uh, yeah, pushing the limits. And uh, and uh, I also remember a lot as a, as a kid uh, 
playing the, the, the game uh, Colin McRae. That was definitely my video game when I was a kid and uh, I spent hours playing this. I knew, um, I knew that he was a real man. Uh, I know that a lot of young people uh, never um, just realized that he was a real guy when he died, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, I, I learned maybe some skill playing his game when I was a kid. <laughs> M-Sport World Rally Championship driver, Oit Tanak. Yeah, for sure. On that time when uh, Colin was on the high, I was uh, just a boy, you know, who could uh, walk under the table, you know, without uh, yeah, going down. So, yeah, definitely he was a kind of big hero. And, uh, yeah, I really well remember, you know, his nickname as McCrash. And, and uh, I was maybe also, that's why I was a big, big fan of him. But, uh, yeah, he was a big guy and, and uh, definitely one of these guys who made uh, WRC what it looks today. Well, it's great to hear how much of an impact Colin McRae has on the current generation of WRC drivers. We haven't had the chance to touch on anything other than a tiny number of the stories about Colin McRae. But has anyone got any late additions they'd like to mention? There, there is, for me, there's just the one, the one, Ed. Well, there's not. There's obviously a load more than just the one. But there was, I remember in 95, uh, I would have been a spectator on the RAC and my father and I following the rally as 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 closely as we could. Uh, and we came, we were somewhere in Wales, I can't remember where, or somewhere up north. Uh, and there was a, a car, I can't remember, a Peugeot 205, something like that. Just a road car with four Scottish people in. Um, and Dad and I had been following rallies for a long time. So we, we kind of had an idea what we were doing. And these guys were parked at the side of the road uh, and clearly lost, completely lost. So they, they flagged us down and said, would you mind, can we follow you? You're obviously on the rally. So we said, yeah, yeah, no problem. So they followed us into the next stage and they jumped out, parked behind us uh, and they got out and we sort of, we didn't, obviously we didn't know them uh, and they were talking in a, a broad Scottish accent and they were obviously very enthusiastic when Colin came through and um, we started chatting and oh yeah, we, we're good mates with Colin and so, okay, great. So they said, can we follow you to the next stage? Yeah, yeah, no problem. So we get in the car, we drive to the next stage and as we're driving to the next stage, I'm saying to dad, deep crikey, these people are mates of Colin and my dad's father's saying, yeah, David, everybody is a good mate of Colin's. So we get to the next stage, we watch Colin come through, we jump in the car, we go to the next stage, same thing, they're following us and they've given us a little bit more that you're thinking maybe they're, maybe they're from the same town or something. We arrive at a T-junction uh, and we're turning right, sat in traffic, and McRae comes howling down the outside of us, locks up, because he sees this car behind us, this Peugeot, and he stops on the wrong side of the road, opens the door, and he's chatting away to this this car of four people behind us. I could not believe it. So we then carry on to the next stage, and you suddenly take these people very seriously. And overnight, we, we picked them up the next morning, and they, they stuck with us. Uh, and at one of the service points they marched off and they went into Colin's private motorhome and dad and I were like cry couldn't believe that we'd we'd had the honor of meeting these friends of Colin and they said come with us <laughs> and 95 RAC there is my father and I sat in Colin's motorhome eating tunnocks tea cakes or whatever and honestly I will never forget that moment the fact unfortunately Colin was coming through the door as my father went out of the door and dad nearly knocked him over as he came in this is, but it was a great memory I think, as we've touched on, Colin very much appealed to rally fans. It's really uh, no clearer than the reaction to his sad and untimely death. And this poem came from one of his fans. It's a poem called Flat Over Crest by David James. It goes like this. 
Up at five and Raleigh so keen to see the bond of man and machine. Three hours to drive to get to the start. We all have a laugh and so full of heart. We know it's early, the weather's damp, but we need to see the cars come off the ramp. Through fog and rain we push on with style. We know the main man is due in a while. Then comes a whistle. The marshals say time. A car now is coming through forests of pine. Its howl is so frightening, like a banshee on heat. There's no escape as we shuffle our feet. And suddenly, now it's why we are here. Macrae, over crest, of course, in top gear. It's been worth the wait, the weather, the toil, to see the brave Scot here on home soil. But there's a silence now, and it's deafening too, because you and the wee man have bid us adieu. So rest in peace, Colin, you and your lad. You gave us your best. Johnny, be proud of your dad. The memories you left us are above all the rest. You shone like a star, just simply the best. Colin, you're a mate, and that's what we all thought. Now you're in heaven, with your boy and at rest. But you left us the true meaning of flat over crest. So thanks very much for for joining us, David Evans and Colin Clark. You can read David Evans in Autosport and Motorsport News and on autosport.com and on motorsport-news.co.uk. Colin Clark writes a regular column in Motorsport News. You can follow him on Twitter at at Voice of Rally. Remember to check out our plus subscriber area on autosport.com, 94p a week. You get all sorts of extra in-depth features on rallying the whole world of motorsport. So thanks very much for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. Redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino style games to choose from, you too could win life changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to chumbacasino.com and give them a whirl. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. I love the playoffs. Anything can happen. But the best part? It's like bonus football. And bonus football means betting bonuses with Gambit DC. For a limited time, you can get boosted deposits by 57% up to $1,000 on the Gambit DC app and up to a 57% multi-sport parlay boost at Gambit DC retail locations. It's the most exciting time to be a fan. So make your play and get the home field advantage with Gambit DC. Limited time offer, terms and conditions apply. Please buy responsibly. Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. 
Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.